Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly web scene for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled Rising, and it's based upon the lectionary readings for April 17th, 2022, Easter Sunday. In our epistle this week, St. Paul makes a claim about Jesus' resurrection that feels truer and truer to me the older I get. Quote, if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. End quote. Amen. I can't speak for Paul, but I can say the Christ's resurrection is the heart of my faith and the foundation of my hope. It is the reason why I'm a Christian. Without the empty tomb, without Jesus' historic bodily return to life 2,000 years ago, I simply can't reconcile God's love and God's justice with the horrors I see in the world around me. Death is too appalling a violation. Evil is too ferocious an enemy. Injustice is too cruel and endemic a reality. Humanity, though beautiful, is broken beyond description. I need the empty tomb. I need the promise of resurrection. That said, I struggle with doubt every single day. I even struggle with doubt on Easter Sunday. It's not easy to affirm resurrection in a disenchanted world, a world that considers miracles embarrassing, disdains belief in an afterlife, mocks crazy things like angels, demons, prophets, and saviors, and shies away from mysteries that lie outside the purview of science. We live in such a world, and so we struggle to believe. Of course we do. What comforts me is that the first witnesses to the empty tomb struggled too. As our gospel reading from St. John describes it, Jesus' friends stumble around in the half-light on that third day after his crucifixion, running here and there in their confusion. Is it an angel sitting in that unlit tomb? Are those shadows mere tricks of the eyes or unwrapped grave clothes? That man lingering outside, is he really just the gardener? Early in the morning, while it was still dark. That's where Easter began two millennia ago. It's where Easter still begins now, in the dark. It helps me to remember the trumpets and choirs, vestments and lilies, processions and exclamations all came later. Easter began with fear and bewilderment. As the shocking truth of life after death collided with the grim lies of injustice and empire, the first disciples had to reach out with their imaginations and grab hold of resurrection hope in mere slivers. They had to hope in the midst of their struggles, in the heart of the shadows. Perhaps the gospel accounts of the resurrection keep surviving our doubts because they ring so true to human nature. In John's version, we see individual people having profoundly different encounters with Christ. The encounters don't look identical. When Peter sees the empty tomb, he runs away. When the beloved disciple sees it, he believes without comprehension. When Mary sees it, she weeps and waits for more. But all of them, without exception, experience the resurrection. In other words, we come to the empty tomb as ourselves for good or for ill. We don't shed our baggage ahead of time. It barges in with us and shapes our perceptions and conclusions. What matters then is encountering the risen Jesus in the particulars of our own lives. What matters is finding in the empty tomb the hope we need for our own struggles, losses, traumas, and disappointments. Whatever universal claims we make as Christians must begin in the rich, fertile ground of our own hearts, 
our own stories. Whatever acclamations we cry out on Easter Sunday must begin with the willingness to linger in the garden, desolate and alone, listening for the sounds of our own names, spoken back to us in love. For our testimonies to ring true, they must originate in radical, intimate encounter. The question is not, why should other people believe, but rather, why do you believe? Why is the resurrection of Jesus essential to you? What does Christ's rising look like in your life? In John's account, Mary Magdalene sees Jesus first because she chooses to remain in the holy darkness, bereft and bewildered. She doesn't flee. She doesn't sugarcoat her despair. She doesn't go numb. She stays put in the place where her pain is and weeps. She gives the grief, desolation, hopelessness, and agony of her circumstances their due. Unlike her male counterparts, Mary refuses to abandon what is real, even when what is real is unbearable. I love the way her story honors sorrow as a legitimate and faithful pathway to revelation. In my own life, I find it increasingly true that clarity, hope, and healing come when I am willing to linger in hard and barren places, places where the usual platitudes fall flat and all easy answers prove inadequate. Jesus reveals himself in the shadows, and sometimes it takes a long time to recognize him. He doesn't look the way I expect him to look. He doesn't let me cling to my old ideas of him. He disappears again just as I grab hold of him. But he comes, he calls my name, and in that instant, I recognize both myself and him. And then there's Peter. Peter who runs headlong into the tomb and runs right back out again. Impatient, impetuous, headstrong Peter. He just can't bear to stay in the wounded place. He flees instead. I'm so grateful that his response to the empty tomb is included in the Gospels. Why? Because we need the disciple who runs. We need to know that even when our doubts, questions, betrayals, and failures send us sprinting for the exit doors, the good news of Easter will find and claim us anyway. Peter is too jittery to wait with Mary, too proud, exhausted, or ashamed to weep in her presence too numb with despair to see the angels and hear their amazing news. Perhaps like you, I've been there. I've been in an emotional landscape so desolate I've lost my ability to take in the gospel. I've doubted Christianity so severely I've wanted nothing more than to run away from God until I collapse. I've missed a fair number of the angels God has sent my way because I couldn't remain still enough to perceive and welcome them. And yet, and yet the resurrection story has found and claimed me anyway. If you are a runner like Peter, if you act first and reflect later, if you go numb sometimes, if the good news bewilders you and sends you bolting for the doors, the Easter story is for you too. It will always be for you. Run if you need to. It will wait for you. Finally, there's the beloved disciple. He enters the tomb after Peter, sees Jesus' linen wrappings lying about, and believes without understanding. It's not clear from the text what he believes or how deeply. Does he believe that Jesus' body has been stolen? Does he embrace the possibility that Jesus is alive? Does he recognize that God has vanquished death and vindicated the Messiah? We don't know. We only know that he sees and believes. Meaning he leans into the truth of his experience, the evidence of his own eyes. He gives himself over, without cynicism or despair, to whatever messy faith is possible in the moment. And then he leaves the door open for his faith to deepen. He believes as he can and trusts as he can, no more, no less. I love the way the beloved disciple's story honors the gap between faith and understanding because it's a gap I know so well. I believe, but I don't yet understand. I believe in the resurrection, but I don't understand death's ongoing cruelty. 
I believe that Jesus reigns, but I don't understand the elusive nature of his kingdom. I believe that all things will be well, but I don't understand why they're not all well now. St. Anselm of Canterbury's motto for the Christian life was faith-seeking understanding. I like that. It invites me to begin right where I am. What have I experienced of Jesus so far? Can I hang on to the faith that is possible in light of my experience, incomplete though it is? The remarkable thing about the resurrection is that it grows in us. It roots us, and it roots itself into us. Often, it's only in retrospect, only as we look back at the gravesides of our lives, that we notice this rootedness and find the miracle the first disciples found. Poet R.S. Thomas describes the process this way in his poem, The Answer. There have been times when, after long on my knees in a cold chancel, a stone has rolled from my mind, and I have looked in and seen the old questions lie folded in a place by themselves, like the piled grave clothes of love's risen body. St. Paul sums up his teaching in this week's epistle with a promise rooted in pure joy. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. He is risen. He is risen indeed. This lectionary essay is the last one I will post as a staff writer for Journey with Jesus. I'm grateful it is the essay for Easter, because the resurrection reminds me that our endings, however bittersweet, are not final. New life comes, it cannot be stopped. Every change, every sorrow, every hope, and every farewell is held in the arms of the risen Christ. Like the first disciples, we will stumble and fall. But like the Christ of the empty tomb, we will also rise. This is the promise of resurrection. For books this week, Dan reviews Colson Whitehead's Harlem Shuffle. Colson Whitehead is on nearly everyone's short list of the most important writers in the United States today. He has written 10 books of fiction and nonfiction. His many awards include two Pulitzer Prizes for his novels, The Underground Railroad, which also won the National Book Award, and The Nickel Boys, a MacArthur Fellowship and a Guggenheim Fellowship. Harlem Shuffle is a book of crime fiction that's set in Harlem in the 1960s. Upon its release in September of 2021, it debuted as number three on the New York Times bestseller list. In fact, Whitehead was born and raised in Manhattan and lives in New York City today. He has called the novel a love letter to Harlem. I would describe that as a deeply complicated love. The story features a conflicted protagonist, Ray Carney, and his bittersweet love for his city. The Harlem of Whitehead's novel is populated by thongs, gangsters, pimps, embezzlers, and an assortment of lowlifes. A baseball bat is standard equipment for a bar owner. Racial tensions simmer in the ethnic mix of Jews, Italians, Southern Blacks, and West Indians, everyone who came uptown had crossed some violent ocean. It is a world of flop houses, dingy bars, and urban blight for those who cannot escape it. A tendency toward moral irregularity made you irregular. This is a Harlem where you must go along to get along. It's not just the bad people who are bad, the good people are also bad. The crooked cops, judges, bankers, accountants, and founding fathers of New York City who are what passes for mainstream culture, including Carney's in-laws. They could pass for white, are race-conscious and proud, and spiteful of his dark skin color. Crooked world, straight world, same rules, everybody had a handout for the envelope. Harlem took everything into its clutches and sent it every which way, and so there were no shortage of reasons to get out of Harlem if you could swing it. Carney struggles with his city, but also with his soul. He's a bad, good guy who lives a double life as a striver and a crook. He was only slightly bent when it came to being crooked and practiced that ambition. 
In his straight life, he owns a furniture store and loves his wife and kids, while in his crooked life, the furniture store is a fence for stolen goods. Carney is like a horse with two riders. He has a midnight side and a daylight side. His moral ambiguity is marbled and not merely segmented. In his bitter moments, he understands his debasement. He has descended rungs into the sewer and become another shabby player in the city's sordid theater. However much Whitehead loves Harlem, Carney fantasizes about leaving. Who would not want to flee a dark apartment with a back window that peered out onto an air shaft and a front window kitty-corner to the elevated one train? In a tangle of lives with bad actors that threaten his very life. Having moved up and out of Harlem one time, Carney imagines yet another move to Strivers Row. It was such a pretty block, and on certain nights when it was cool and quiet, it was as if you didn't live in the city at all. Perfect. Such is Harlem love. For films this week, we review Citizen Hearst, American Experience, PBS, 2021, a review by Brad Keister. This PBS miniseries, two parts, four hours, traces the life of William Randolph Hearst, who was arguably the most influential media titan of the first half of the 20th century. Hearst leveraged his father's vast fortune to build a publishing empire and to leave his stamp on the media that persists to this day. As a young man, William built up the San Francisco Examiner, then a backlot publication, into the city's dominant paper. He used the money to hire the best writers in the business. But then he remade the newspaper into a garish tabloid, focusing on anything that would grab the attention of a common reader, making use of large headlines, sensational photos, and in many cases untruths, all to sell papers and increase circulation. This was a huge change from newspapers up to that time, which consisted of small, uniform, dense text, and as one commentator put it, every day's paper looked like that of any other day. Having conquered San Francisco, Hearst turned his insatiable ambition to New York, where he eventually dominated his rival Joseph Pulitzer, in a city that at the time had dozens of papers. From there, it was a matter of time as Hearst began to acquire newspapers across the country. He took a personal interest in the details of his papers, including the headlines and language in the articles, thus putting his personal stamp on a media empire with millions of subscribers. His power rivaled heads of state. Some argued that his was the prime influence for pushing the U.S. into war with Spain. Hearst's influence eventually went into, into decline as he overspent his vast fortune, and creditors took over the business. The Hearst story was also the inspiration for Orson Welles' film Citizen Kane, from which the PBS series name is derived. Hearst suppressed any mention of the film in his publications. As the commentators in this series emphasize, it is hard to think about the media world before Hearst, who literally changed the way we think about news. Nowadays, we expect to be informed every day about events in the world, but it was not always thus. We may do well to rethink our expectations in today's world of superheated, instantaneous media. And lastly, for poems for Easter Sunday, John Donne's Death Be Not Proud, Holy Sonnet 10. Death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkst thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. From rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be, much pleasure. Then from thee much more must flow, and soonest our best men with thee do go, rest of their bones and souls' delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men, and dust with prison, war, and sickness dwell, and popular charms can make us sleep as well and better than thy stroke. Why swellest thou then?
One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for April 17th, 2022. I'm Debbie Thomas.